Welcome to the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of McMinnville podcast. Founded in 2007, UUFM is a gathering place for people who embrace a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We are located in the heart of Oregon's Willamette Valley wine country. Please visit us on the web at macuuf.org, M-A-C-U-U-F dot org. And if you are ever in or near the McMinnville area, don't hesitate to stop by and visit us. UUFM gathers in love and service for justice and peace. All right. Next, as I mentioned, we are very fortunate to have Rabbi Deborah Kaladny back. Rabbi Deborah is a veteran of several social justice movements, bringing a spiritual perspective and an activist passion to racial and economic justice, women's environmental peace, and LGBTQ causes since 1981. We're so glad you're back. We're instructed in the Hebrew scriptures, tzedek tzedek tirdof, pursue, pursue justice. Maybe you know that the Torah backs this instruction up with hundreds of commandments on welcoming and honoring the immigrant, on treating and paying the laborer fairly, on loving one's neighbor as oneself, on being fair in commerce, on preventing the accumulation and transfer of intergenerational wealth, on ensuring that the least amongst us is fed and housed, on restorative justice and on protecting the environment and pursuing justice in general. The books of the prophets and psalms add hundreds more invitations to do the same. I like to think that when we live into this invitation to pursue justice, we're standing on the shoulders of the revolutionaries of the past, whether mythical or real, doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, stories have power in our psyche. Revolutionaries like Moses, who with Yah defeated the tyrant Pharaoh and led us to freedom, or the queen and judge and warrior, my namesake, Dvorah, who defeated Cicero, protecting her people from harm and oppression and judging fairly when conflicts arose. When our ancestors' deeds live, in our me- live on in our memories and in our souls, Then, as we sing, as Jews sing at the end of each of the five books, when we're done reading that portion of the Torah, we sing, Chazak, chazak, v'nid chazek, v'nid chazek, chazak, chazak, v'nid chazek, v'nid chazek. Let us be strong, strong, and strengthen each other, strong, strong, and strengthen each other. When our ancestors' deeds live in our memories and in our souls, we are strengthened because this book is not just about the past. The Torah is about now. And when those justice stories live in our bodies and we feel the rush of defeating Pharaoh and when our hearts soar to the imperative of loving the asylum seeker and when we experience the liberation that comes from relieving debt every seven years, can you imagine? Then... We can feel it in our bodies, in our spirit, and in our soul. And then we cannot fail. But I'm not going to unpack every one of these hundreds of commandments because, wow, that would be boring. Um, (laughs) You can go read yourself. 
But what I do want to share today is the recipe that the Torah gives us for becoming a justice seeker of the highest order. I want to share what Torah teaches us about becoming a first-level wizard of justice-making. The role model that I found for this work is Yaakov, our third father, and his story in Torah comprises what I have come to refer to as the first activist manual on intersectional justice. Torah teaches that Yaakov, or Jacob, the man who became Yisrael, the God wrestler for whom the entire Jewish people would be named, so he's pretty like important, he left Beersheba and went towards Haran to find a wife. Rashi calculates his age as 63. I know sometimes we think of these characters as maybe younger when they did their unbelievable uh, acts, but he was 63, a mature man. And on his journey, Yaakov dreams of a ladder with angels ascending and descending. And in this dream, Yah, God, promises Yaakov the land upon which he lays his head. And what's more, the text tells us that Yah says to Yaakov, I am with you and I will guard you wherever you go. Yaakov awoke from this dream and he sang, well, he said, but I like to think that he sang, Yesh Hashem b'makohum hazem, Yesh Hashem b'makohum hazem, Yesh Hashem b'makohum hazem, v'anochi lo yadati. Yaakov sang, there is God in this place, and I did not know it. And we're told by Torah that in that moment, Ein Zeki im Beit Elohim, this is none other than the house of Elohim, the house of Yah, Vezesha Ar Hashemayim, and this is the gate of heaven. So let's take a pause and unpack that. First, we're taught that the gate to heaven is the place where one dreams. And so what this tells us is that if what we want to see is heaven on earth, that the place where we cross over from this chaotic, painful, violent, divisive, uncompassionate world that we're living in, the place where we cross over from what we are experiencing here in this moment into the world that we want to experience, the place of justice and fairness and beauty, where all are safe and healthy and whole and educated and honored, that place is the place where we dream. So being a social justice wizard first means that we have to dream. And it is through our dreams that we enter the gate to heaven. And when we enter the gate of heaven, we are promised safety. But there are no promises before we dream. Even if we don't believe in God, even if we can't imagine that God would be with us, even if we can't imagine a way forward, when we dare to dream and put aside our skepticism, our cynicism, our fear, and our anger, we are rewarded. Through our dreams, we get a glimpse of heaven, and safety is ours. So being a social justice wizard means being brave for sure and taking the initiative and letting go and opening to possibility. But here's the kicker, if you haven't already intuited it, 
from what is implicit in starting from dreaming. It means we don't start from anger. And we don't start from otherizing. And we don't start from blaming. We don't start from fear. We don't start from our own wounding. Hmm. In my experience, and I've been an activist since I was eight, so it's been 51 years. In my experience, 98% of activism starts from anger and a sense of wounding and a sense of injustice and a sense of fear. Do we even know what it means to start from dreaming and not from those things? Let's take a minute. What are your dreams? If you strip away your concern about the detention centers, or we might call them concentration camps at the border, and if you unhook from your horror at the Muslim uh, travel ban, and you unhook from the outrage at the ban for transgender people in the military, and, 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 and. Oh my God, if you unhook from the outrageous righteousness that you have about this tax system that we have. By the way, did you know in the 1970s we actually had a fairly healthy tax system? The inequality that we see today is totally a product of legislation in the tax bill. Unbelievable. So what if you unhook from all of that and you dreamed? Anybody want to share a dream? Thank you. Others? A world of living ecosystems for our children. Ah, beautiful. Living ecosystems. Come on. (laughs) I know you're not all sitting here angry and fearful. I know you have dreams. What else? Yes, in the back. Everyone's housed, yes. Healthcare for all, fantastic. What else? Come on, you're running for president. What's your platform? <laughs> yes. Open borders. Open borders. No one gets hurt unless they're climbing a tree and they fall down from the tree. Natural, organic, necessary growing pains. Yes. Truth and media, Truth and media. fantastic. An equitable and strong public education system. Fantastic. Equitable and strong public education. I have a dream that we re-indigenize. And if you don't know what that's about, talk to me afterwards. Yeah. Anyone else? There's no discrimination. There's no violence based on, there's no hatred based on identity. Race, ethnicity, National origin, gender identity. So, dreams. And it's not just as simple as identifying what our dreams are. We actually have to release the anger and the wounding and the blaming and the shaming. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I think that's really hard. It's so fantastic. That's why spiritual practice exists. Okay, back to our ancestor, Yaakov. 
So he was 63, you know, he was a mature man. You might think that he would have wisdom and spiritual development. And he knows that in this moment, he does have enough wisdom to be brave and let go, to dream, to allow himself to stop and sleep and restore himself. He knows enough to do that. But he still has more waking up to do before he can manifest as a wizard for peace building and for social justice because his story isn't over with this dream. So what else has to happen? What else has to happen to Yaakov? What else has to happen to us? Or do we need to create it within us in order to become this high-level wizard, this Dumbledore, let's say? When Yaakov was 99 years old, he had another encounter with Yah where he got his name, Yisrael, God wrestler. He wrestled with a man or maybe an angel or maybe Esau, his brother, or maybe some other aspect of himself if you have a Jungian analysis of Torah. Or maybe it was Yah and Yisrael prevailed in that wrestling. And then what happened? Then he reconciled with his long-estranged brother, Esau, with whom he had enormous enmity and with whom a war could have started. But instead of war, love and reconciliation and wholeness and peace emerged from their encounter. Shift happened. Shift happens, and so we need to ask how. With sufficient spiritual development, the potential for ongoing abuse, oppression, anger, and even war can be averted, and healing can ensue. Or we might also say that the repetition compulsion that comes out of abuse that plagues generation after generation can be stopped and healed. Let's look at the story and see how we can help make that happen ourselves. Yaakov lived 36 years between his two divine encounters between 63 and 99. In Jewish numerology, 36 is twice chai, and chai means life, so we learn that Yaakov lived two lifetimes between he was the time when he was woke enough to dream and the time when he was woke enough to reconcile and create peace. 36 years. One thing we learn from this is patience is helpful in our own spiritual development. But there's more. Yisrael lived two lifetimes since his path was the path of deceit and theft. It was that path, deceit and theft, that prompted him to flee his birth home in fear of being killed by his brother. Do you remember? He stole his brother's birthright and his brother's blessing. It was two lifetimes between that consciousness. Midrash tells us that during that time, he studied Torah. So one thing we learned is that a path to becoming a social justice wizard is to dive deeply into spiritual wisdom, into ancient wisdom. During these two lifetimes, he marries two women. One he wanted, the other one he didn't realize he was going to get. Can you imagine the spiritual like maturity that that took? <laughs> and he parents two lifetimes during which his deceit towards his brother was balanced by his father-in-law's deceit toward him. So he had the experience that he imposed on his brother was imposed on him when Lavan said, you have to marry Leah before you marry Rachel. In the Jewish construct cosmology, that when that happens, when... Uh, Payback is a bitch happens. 
can say that because the kids are gone. <laughs> when that happens, it's called mita keneged mita, like begets like, and it's the Jewish version of karma. So he had an experience of karma which taught him just how wrong his earlier behavior was. These two lifetimes were necessary to have his second God encounter and then meet his brother and make peace. All right, there's a lot that just happened, so I'm going to... I'm going to unpack it for you. First, in those 36 years, ramp up your alignment with spirit. Study holy texts, holy principles, worship that which is holy, and live a spirit-filled life. Easier said than done. Two, cultivate an honorable personal life. Grow sustainable, honorable relationships with your intimates that transcend your family of origin drama. Oh, here, this is really important, right? When we're wounded from our family of origin dysfunction, which the vast majority of us have experienced, I think the next generation is experiencing a whole lot less of that because I don't know about you, but my parents thought it was shameful to seek out therapy and personal healing. And so whatever their unhealed stuff was got passed on to me, and it was on me, right, to do the therapy and the acupuncture and the body talk and the this and that and that and then the prayer and the meditation so that I could release that stuff, right? Okay. So you need to create an honorable personal life, whether through marriage or not, that transcends your family of origin drama. If we are still experiencing triggers from our original wounding, if we're still, we are therefore still controlled by that, we can't be effective in our justice work. We can't be effective peacemakers. Don't worry. You don't have to be totally finished with your healing because then we'll probably be dead. I know I'll be dead when I'm going to be healing, healing, healing until the day I die, right? But you must be far enough along. We must be far enough along to recognize when we're triggered and take a breath and step back and not respond from that place, right? All right. Get holy. Do your personal healing work. How do you know you're done with your healing? Well, you can experience something like what Yaakov experiences, where either the tables are turned on you, like with Levan, his father-in-law, or, and, and you accept it, you manage it. You don't kill the guy who did this to you. You say, ah, I get it, I get it. That might happen. Or maybe you're in a situation like that wounded you a year ago, You just felt hurt, and it took you weeks and weeks and maybe months of, like, intrusive thinking about how hurt you were. I don't know if that happens to you. It happens to me. But this time, when that same kind of situation arises, you're not wounded. You feel a sense of calm and separation from what's happening. You remember it's not personal to you. It's personal to whoever's doing what the thing is that used to wound you. It's not about you at all. You're unattached or detached, perhaps, as the Buddhists say, right? Yeah. You're just moving along, shining your beautiful luminosity, and it's all good. Your fears aren't realized, and your former patterns aren't replicated, and you're living into your most ethical self, and, whoa, look, things work out. The thing that you feared would happen because of your trigger, your inner wound, it doesn't happen. Uh, 
So what exactly did take place in that encounter between Yisrael and Esau, his brother? Before Yaakov wrestles with Yah, I go inter back and forth between Yaakov, Jacob, and Yisrael. They're all the same character, if that hasn't been clear. Okay. Before he wrestles with Yah, Yaakov sends his two wives and two concubines, along with their retinue and his children, plus lots of very, very valuable gifts, livestock, etc., hoping to appease his brother Esau. And then he spends another light night alone. Maybe he remembered that night when he dreamed. Maybe he remembered the promise of safety. Maybe he remembered that the gateway to heaven and manifesting your, what you truly hope for is to dream. Whatever his intentions, we don't know. But he spends a night alone apart from everything he owns and everything he loves. A lot of people think this is a sign of his fear because he sends his... Um, his women and children in front of him. I think it's a sign that he's wise, personally. Taking a step back is always a good thing. Oh, that's another thing in the list. All right. I think he was wise enough to know that that moment required another holy encounter before he could see his brother face to face, his brother whom he had deceived, his brother whose life he had totally transformed. And he didn't know if it was ended up being for the good or being for the bad, right? It was really a stressful moment. He knew he needed to experience spirit for it to be his highest self. And I believe that that is what happened that because I believe that that is true about his intention because that is what actually happened. He sends his family and his retinue and his possessions in front of him. And that night... He doesn't dream. He doesn't dream. He has an awakening vision where he wrestles with this being. So he has already moved from the kind of a person who can see the divine in his dream state to being one who could see spirit in his waking state. For those of you who are spirits of any spiritual path, who are, who are students of any spiritual path, you will know that this is the path of the spiritual master, to go from unconsciousness to consciousness in your relationship to spirit. So he has this hand-to-hand -hand combat encounter engagement for hours, and the question then arises, what is that engagement with this man or this god or this, or his brother, the spirit of his brother or the spirit of somehow himself, he's fighting with himself. The word that the Torah uses is vayavek, and it's always translated as wrestled. So for anyone who doesn't read Hebrew, you will be sure that what he did with that entity was wrestle. However, the verb, check this out, also means embrace. Ugh. So Yaakov engages in the most intimate struggle possible. Well, wrestling does look like embracing for any of you who have liked, right? Embracing, but he's embracing what is challenging him instead of casting it away. Embracing instead of attacking. Embracing instead of distancing. Embracing instead of otherizing. Embracing and wrestling at the same time. It's what we do with that which we love the most. And it's what we do when we're present with a capital P. When it's over, the being that Yaakov embraces, wrestles with, dances with, says, Yaakov, 
Ki sarita im Elohim ve'im anashim vatuchal. You have contended with godly beings and with men, and you have won, which is why we don't know what this entity was, with godly beings and with men, and you have won. Rabbi Aharon Soloveitchek teaches that the, be, that the being who renames Yaakov doesn't use the word nelchamta, you have fought. When he describes what happened between them, he uses the word sarisa, you have striven. These are connected, but they are not the same. Nelchamta <clears throat> comes from the same root as war. It implies violence and struggle in order to defeat or control or destroy. Sarisa, on the other hand, suggests that striving towards authority and influence followed by efforts to inspire good, noble, and spiritual qualities inherent in one, one's adversary. All of that's in that word, Sarisa. Okay. So there was not a fight. There was a striving so we have an intimate, embracing encounter that involves striving, not a violent wrestling encounter. Yaakov, this being says, struggled with him in a way that maintained both of their personal integrity and did not diminish the adversary. Can you imagine in today's political climate if this is how everyone who was in leadership was engaging? Can you imagine? Well, we're not in charge of them, but we're in, in charge of us, right? When then what happens? Yaakov leaves the striving with a limp, with the name Yisrael and with a blessing. Yisrael names the place Peniel, God's face, and declares, Ki ra'iti Elohim panim panim sel nafshi, because I have seen God face to face and my soul has survived. And then the sun shines on him. Yaakov sees the light. Yaakov experiences enlightenment. Immediately after the encounter, Yisrael strives with Esau in the same exact way that he strove with the angel. He honors his brother. He honors his brother's integrity. He invites Esau into his highest self. So he learns in that encounter, which was not wrestling, but which was striving, which was not antagonistic, but which was intimate. He is given the blueprint for how to engage with the other, even when he was afraid. He led with gifts, and he sublimated his own authority. He sublimated his own wealth, his power, and his family. The first thing he does is he prostrates before Esau. Seven times he prostrates. He nullifies himself. He lets go of his mundane self, and he allows spirit to move through him. And when he sees his brother, what did he see? He sees the very thing. When he sees Esau, he sees the very thing he saw in his moment of enlightenment after his wrestling. Torah tells us that Yisrael sees the face of God in his brother. Elohim. So we learn once enlightened, it is possible to see the face of God in everyone one encounters, even those we fear the most, even those we think are out to kill us. 
And after this, after seeing God's face and his long-estranged brother, Yaakov repeatedly refers to Esav as my master, Adoni. If you know the word Adonai, Lord, Adoni, my Lord, he refers to his brother with the name of God. By the way, this is my unpacking. You will not learn this anywhere else. <laughs> Yaakov honors the God in Esau repeatedly, and then Yaakov gives Esau a blessing. Yaakov seals the karma, the blessing that he took away from Esau lifetimes ago is now granted. Now, don't worry, I'm going to go over all the steps again. I even brought a handout with me for anybody who might want to take it. Many scholars say that the word ivrit, or Hebrew, comes from the root of the word avar, to cross over. So embedded in the core identity of the Jewish people is the invitation to, or perhaps even the mandate, to cross over. To always be heading someplace better. To find the bridge between here and there or to actually be the bridge between here and there, to be brave enough to cross boundaries that might seem impossible to traverse, to be faithful enough to recreate the kind of world that Yah created in the garden, where we dwelled at the very beginning of time. And whether that lushly landscaped, gorgeously balanced, spirit-drenched place called Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, is, mythical, is mythological or not, and whether it's your dream or not to return there, it doesn't matter. Because that state of wholeness, that state of balance, that state of intraconnectivity, that state of all that is being aware of, conscious of, conscious of and in relationship to everything, that is not mythological. In the Hindu tradition, we learn that that's all there is. That state of oneness, that's all there is. And the Hasidic tradition in Judaism says, says the same. So we have the invitation to cross boundaries and be a bridge. And lucky for us, in this story of Yaakov, the Torah teaches us how to cross the boundary between what our broken hearts settle for and what our essential consciousness yearns for. Torah doesn't te just teach us how, but it calls us by the name, that calls Jews by the name, that insists that we remember to cross the boundary between what our broken hearts settle for and what our essential consciousness yearns for, what, to bring heaven right here to the earth. What's the recipe? Be brave. Dream. Open to possibility. Study or some other way engage with spirit deeply have honorable relationships that are untainted by our childhood uh, wounding. Heal all other wounds, not just the ones from our childhood, before we can think we can heal anything else, or at least get us far enough along in the healing process that we can be witnesses instead of reactive. Allow grace to fall upon us, open to enlightenment, Submit to those we have harmed, but know when to do that. Know when it's safe. Don't be unsafe. See Yah and the other, especially those we have harmed. This might seem an impossible task in this current environment, in this current 
madness. But I'll tell you, if we start with each other, we'll go a long way forward because I don't know about you, but for me, when I do activism these days, there is so much horizontal hostility. There's what's called a hierarchy of oppressions that's operating. And there is distrust amongst folks who are on the same side, right? <clears throat> How can you know what my experience is? You know. So, if it's too much to think of how to do this across the aisle, think about how to do this within the context that we work with others who are at, with whom we're allies. And then when we cross over the boundary between what is now and what is possible, then we can change the world. We can find reconciliation, we can bring peace, and we can manifest our dreams. We can feel it in our bodies, in our spirit, and in our soul. Thank you.